Well, we just finished a series uh, through the book of Titus, and if we learned anything going through that book, going through that small letter that Paul wrote to Titus, was that in order for a church to be godly, in order for the people of God to live holy lives, godly lives, they need to have their doctrine right. More and more these days, we're, we're not seeing that. We're seeing a skip Let's just skip to helping people, skip to love. All the world needs is love, love, love is all we need, right? But what is love? As soon as you answer that question, that's doctrinal. Where do you get love? How do you define love? That's doctrinal. Uh, So doctrine is a foundation. So we're entering a new series now uh, that we're calling What We Believe, What We Believe. If any of you have ever gone to our website and clicked on that portion that says what we believe. There are seven statements there. Okay, it's also for members. We have the Constitution and, and our faith statement. Uh, those seven statements are there. The next uh, seven sermons, aside from Good Friday and Easter, they're going to be on those doctrinal statements. So if you want to get a heads up, what is, what is Pastor Lucas going to be preaching on? On such and such a week? Just do the math. Go to that website, look at those seven statements, and you'll see what we're going to be on. But today we're going to start with Scripture, what we believe about Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the truthfulness of Scripture. And I don't know about you, you might ask, you know, why, why don't we start with God? You know, doesn't the Bible even start in the beginning? God, it doesn't start in the beginning the Bible. That's true. That's true. But how do we know in the beginning anything was there? How do we know what God did or what God said? Well, because the Bible says so. How do you know the Bible's true? See, so the first statement in the doctrinal statement is about the truth of this. Because if this isn't true, then we don't know about the other six. We, we might be making the other six up. We, we, we might be just a bunch of people got together and said, it would be cool if God was like three persons but one substance. It's kind of confusing, but it'll make it mysterious. Let's do that. Is it born from Scripture? Is it born from the mind of man? Is Scripture authoritative? You know, a lot of us grew up singing that song, uh, the B-I-B-L-E. Guess that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E Bible, right? Some of you are like, that sounds dumb. Okay. I sung it as a kid. And as a kid, you're taught that this is the Bible. This is what it says. I stand alone on it. I believe it because it says it. And then some of us, after we grow up and we mature, we're tempted to think that maybe that's naive. That's a little naive. My professor told me a few things. I found out that there's inconsistencies. People tell me the Bible's full of errors. And so, shaky. Shaky. One particular Christian was a, saved as a teenager, went to Moody Bible Institute, graduated with his bachelor's at Moody Bible Institute, magna cum laude. Ooh, smart dude. Then he went to Wheaton, knocked it out at Wheaton. Then he went to Princeton Theological Seminary. Right? Smart dude. But one day he was doing an assignment at Princeton and he he was wrestling with Mark and and there was some passage in the Gospel of Mark and and he couldn't wrap his mind around what the problem was there, what the 
he saw an inconsistency, something he saw that didn't seem to match up, and he couldn't figure it out. So he came to his professor and he asked, told the professor, I'm sorry, I'm handing in this paper, but I, I just can't quite crack what's going on with Mark. And the professor said, well, maybe Mark made a mistake. Something clicked in this young man, and he decided from that point on, yeah, it has a mistake. Maybe there's more mistakes. Maybe there's a lot of mistakes. Okay? This guy now is a prolific author. His name is Bart Ehrman. And all of his books, all of his articles, all of his debates are all over YouTube. He's gaining popularity. He stands up in front of people and talks to them about the Bible, how about the Bible is full of errors. Debates other Christian scholars about that. And tries to convince them of that. I'll give you an example. One debate, one particular debate, I've seen several, but one particular debate, he gave a bunch of examples, and then he gives his crowning achievement example. This is the example where he says, this knocks it out of the park, guys. If you still think the Bible's true after this example, he doesn't say it, but it's like you're an imbecile, right? He says, just read the Gospels for yourself and compare them and see how they say different things. They contradict each other all day long. He says, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus on the way to the cross is silent. Doesn't say anything. When Jesus is on the cross, he's silent. Except for at the end, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he feels so bad about his situation. The Gospel of Luke, on the way to the cross, he's talking to people. On the cross, he's talking to people. He's having conversations with a thief. And he doesn't say, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not thinking about himself in Luke. In Luke, he's thinking about other people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, Luke paints a picture, different picture of Jesus. He says in the Gospel of Mark, the two robbers are mocking him. In the Gospel of Luke, one robber is mocking him, and one robber gets saved. Contradictions. And so what he puts out there is what a lot of Christians are wrestling with. Now, Bart Armand took it to the logical conclusion, and he dumped all of it. He's agnostic now. But many, many denominations have left the doctrine that the, the Bible is fully true. And what will they say? They'll say, well, we don't want to leave the Christian faith. We want to have the cake and eat it too. So here's what we'll say. We'll say the Bible has errors in it, but it's not all wrong. It's truthful where it teaches you where you need. It te- it's truthful where it needs to be. It's truthful where it counts, you know, matters of faith and encouraging you and inspiring you to be a better Christian. That's where it's true. It doesn't matter if Abraham was a real dude. It doesn't matter how many times they marched around Jericho or even if there was a Jericho. Just, it just matters they just trust God. That's all. And so more and more Christians are falling into that category. And what I want to do is just spend a few minutes this morning Okay, before we spend the next few weeks going into who God is, who Jesus is, what he did, what, what, what is the purpose of man, what's the condition of man, all those kind of things that we're going to talk about that are essential to the faith, we need to talk about what the rules are in the game. And the rules in the game are, this needs to be our standard for authority. Otherwise, we might as well put it aside and make up our own thing. Right. So in order to do that, we're going to start in 2 Timothy you're used to going to Titus, right? We're trained to go to Titus now after several weeks. It's just one book to the left, okay? Unless your Bible's in 
like Hebrew or some other language where it goes left to right and then just one book to the right. All right, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've preached on this before. Uh, this is a familiar passage. We've seen it before. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we have what the Bible says about itself. Okay. Um, the Bible says this about itself. So Paul is writing to Timothy. And we'll just start in 14. As for you, Timothy, there's a lot of people being deceived and doing deceiving, and they're messing up whole families. Same kind of situation that Titus had in Crete. Timothy's facing the same kind of stuff in Ephesus, so very similar to what we were looking at when we were in Titus. He tells Timothy, listen to me. Don't be deceived by that stuff. Don't have anything to do with those people that are deceiving. Instead, as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, meaning the people that taught him scripture, verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now right there, see, the, the more liberal camp Christians might say, see, that's what we're talking about. They're sacred writings. We're not saying they're not sacred. They're sacred, and they're able to make you wise for salvation. They're just not able to make you wise for science or for math or for history. It gets facts wrong. They get numbers wrong. They mix up their facts. They mix up their details. But it doesn't matter as long as it makes you wise for salvation. But Paul didn't see that because of his next line. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That is a very intimate very detailed phrase. Uh, breathed out by God is, is one word in the Greek, but it's, it's God breathing out Scripture. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, real quick, follow the logic here. The point that he's telling Timothy, you want to teach people to be equipped, right? You want to equip people? In order to equip them, they need to be trained. In order to be trained, they need something that's profitable enough to get them trained. In order for Scripture to have that kind of profit, it needs to be God-breathed. Scripture is God-breathed, therefore it's profitable. Because it's profitable, it can train you. Because it can train you, it'll equip you and make you the complete person that God wants you to be. We can't get to this complete person without Scripture. And Scripture can't get us there unless it's God-breathed breathed now that is that is the verse from which we get the thought of inspiration right god inspired the authors what does that mean there's another verse that helps us look at it in in uh second peter we're going to put that on the screen you don't have to turn there but you can turn there if you want and in this particular passage uh peter's talking about this same instance the same idea he says no prophecy of we're kind of coming in the middle of a thought here but no prophecy scripture comes from someone's own interpretation what do you think well that's what i think you think something different that's okay as long as scripture inspires you to be a good person no it's it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit those words carried along are one word in the greek that's behind it And it's the same word that they would use when they talked about ships that were carried along by their sails, by the wind that would push the sails and push the ship 
along. Okay, so here's the dilemma. People say the Bible has to be flawed because human authors wrote it. Humans are flawed, therefore it's, it's, it's flawed. Well, when humans write stuff, sure, we can mess up, we can make mistakes. But what Peter is emphasizing and what Paul is emphasizing is that it wasn't just man writing it apart from God. And it wasn't man's will that produced what was written in Scripture. It was God that produced what was written in Scripture. And in those particular instances, when that pen was hitting that parchment, God was moving like wind moves through sails okay, to push the boat along. God superintended the process and breathed out Scripture. Now, here's the other thing you need to recognize in 2 Timothy 3. Some Scripture breathed out. Parts of Scripture breathed out. Every other passage was breathed out. No, all Scripture, beginning of verse 16, all Scripture was breathed out by God. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't leave wiggle room for whole swaths of areas that are just incorrect, not true, didn't happen, that guy wasn't real, okay? If all of it was God-breathed. So this is what Paul believed, this is what Peter believed, okay? And they're teaching Titus, They're teaching Timothy, if you're going to pastor a church, this is how you have to view Scripture. Scripture is breathed out by God, and that's why you yield it. If it wasn't breathed out by God and it was erroneous, then stand up there like an article from the Times and just encourage the people to be good. Don't use any text. Just stand up there and just rah, rah, rah. Be good, people. No, there's an authority in the text because the text itself is breathed out. By God. Which parts? All of it. Scholars like to debate the, the word all could mean every. Does it mean every or does it mean all? Right? Now, I probably wouldn't get into it, but for the thesis that I wrote, I, I had to get into that particular debate. I came to the conclusion that I think the best way to translate it is every text of Scripture rather than all. But I don't think like the ESV should change it because it's both. I'll give you an example. If I owned a car dealership and you came and you wanted to buy a car and I told you all of these cars, all of these cars are approved, certified, ready to go. They're all in perfect working order. And you bought a particular car and you found out very quickly it's a lemon. It's a piece of junk. And then you came to me and said, you said all these cars are in perfect working order. And then I said, well, I said all. I didn't say every. Would that make you feel better? If I said, I meant, I meant all the makes and models. I didn't mean every single automobile. I mean, you just picked one within the umbrella. I mean, no. If I say all of them are in good working order, you don't think, hmm, each individual one? Then I would look at you funny. Of course I mean every individual one if I'm saying all of them. When Paul says all of Scripture, we're not supposed to go like the Psalms written by David, but not the other Psalms? We're not supposed to go, wait, the parts that talk about faith, but not the parts that talk about history? You see, this is how it goes round and round. I mentioned this before. I was challenging a professor that was a guest professor at Trinity, and he was talking about, he was defending uh, his idea that the Bible does have errors, and that that's okay. It doesn't matter. It can be wrong on history stuff as long as it's right on theology stuff. Okay, when I challenge them, I ask them, how do you separate history from theology? 
He said, well, for instance, does it matter if Abraham existed? It doesn't matter. As long as I know that God chooses people and does stuff. Okay. I said, does it matter if Jesus died on the cross? Was that a historical event? He goes, well, 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 that's a historical event. Okay, so you see what happened there. He's admitting now that you can't separate it because if Jesus didn't die on the cross, we're a bunch of dummies for even being here right now. If Jesus didn't die on the cross or if he died on the cross and didn't rise again, still dummies. But if he did, then it means a world of a difference. And so if the Bible is saying that that historical event produces something or shows us something about God, we learn theology from historical events. If those historical events aren't true, when the Bible puts them out there like they're true, we've got some problems. We've got some problems. This passage is why Christians for generations, for since the beginning of the church, have held that Scripture is breathed out by God, and that's what makes it authoritative. My sermon doesn't make it authoritative. Your favorite preacher on the radio isn't authoritative. His sermon, the message, is only authoritative if what he's telling you is what Scripture says. When he veers from it, authority is gone. When he sticks to it, authority is there. That's it. So when you think of uh, these examples that they throw out, um, it just goes to show how Scripture stands the test of time. I mean, this isn't new. Bart Ehrman isn't throwing new things out there. When you go out there and witness the people, they're going to tell you, but it's full of errors. <clears throat> you should take the Bible and turn it around and go, show me. Because it's just become cliche now. A Bible's full of errors. And now that's the excuse to not think, not think critically. You know, when I was clicking on these YouTubes and I'm looking at Bart Ehrman, I'm like, I thought, I, I thought it said he had a PhD. Honest, I, honest, my honest thought was, wait a minute, I went back to check his education because I'm like, there's no way that he's using that flawed of logic. The, the logic is so flawed, there's no way that people are buying his books. There's no way. Nope. PhD, MDiv, Princeton Theological Seminary. The confusion that he has with his biz- biggest example. It's, it's just the eyewitness principle. Okay? It's the eyewitness. If we were interviewed after this service this morning, and somebody put a microphone and said, hey, or just asked you to write it down, what happened in today's service? In just a few lines. Don't give me, you know, just in a few lines, what happened in today's service? Well, we sang some songs, and then Pastor Lucas preached a sermon. Thank you. Thank you for your submission. Next person, what happened today's, well, we opened in prayer, then we prayed again, we collected the offering, prayed again, and then he preached. Wait a minute, what is going on here? CFC is full of liars. Because one of them said we sang songs and then there was a sermon, and the other one said we prayed several times and collected the offering and then there was a sermon. Which one is it? Well, one of them was like so blessed by the music that they... It's not that they didn't remember the collection. It's just that, wow, what happened today? We sang those songs. The other person was thinking, wow, I was, I was just, you know, I was counting how many times we prayed. It was cool. We prayed here. We prayed there. We prayed there. We collected the offering. It's like we don't do anything without asking God to help us with it first. I love that. And then he preached. If you ask that person, wait, did we sing songs? Well, yeah, we sang songs, but you said be brief. 
the gospel writers didn't set out to give you every single detail. John even tells you there's so much more. I couldn't even, I don't, there's not enough scrolls in the earth to fill the stuff that I can tell you. What is he telling you? I'm being real choosy in the details that I'm giving you. And so one gospel writer says Jesus was silent as he went to the cross or doesn't record what Jesus said as he went to the cross. The other gospel writer records what he said as he went to the cross. Well, which one is it? Yes. He was silent most of the way. In very few opportune moments, he turned and said something to someone. Well, on the cross, was he concerned about people and asked the Father to forgive them? Or was he concerned about himself and asked, why did God forsake him? Yes. He was concerned for the people that were crucifying him, and he also felt the, the torment of what they were doing to him. Well, which one was it? There was two robbers mocking him, or one robber was mocking him and the other one got saved? Yes. What do you think the other one was doing before he got saved? They both started off mocking Jesus. It wasn't a two-second ordeal. Hanging there gives you some time to think. Well, thank God that one of the gospel writers recorded for us that amazing moment where someone can go from hating Jesus to asking him for help in a moment. That's how conversions work. So we need not be intimidated by these. and In fact, we should investigate these. Oh, there's an error? Let's look. Okay, let's look at it. We don't have to close our ears and go, la, 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 I'm not listening to you. There's no errors. Uh, the B-I-B-L-E, you know. <laughs> don't have to do that. Investigate it. Hey, bring your Bible. Let's grab some coffee. Let's talk about it. But it is just, you know, they, they point to Genesis. The trees were made. Before man was made, then after man was made, it says that God put man in the garden and made some trees. Well, which one is it? Were trees made before man or after man? Why can't God make trees and then put Adam in a garden and then make some more trees? Make different trees. Germinate a few other kinds of species of trees. Why can't he do that? No, because he said he made trees and he made all trees. Those are categories that the Bible doesn't impose upon itself. And so these apparent contradictions and supposed discrepancies they're not discrepancies they're multiple eyewitnesses if you were in court and you had five witnesses say the exact same thing like it sounded memorized the the case is in trouble it sounds like somebody pulled these five witnesses aside and said say this wouldn't that be a problem if matthew mark luke and john were word for word the exact same details they would still have a problem they would now say oh they're not in collusion No, but it's varied, without contradiction, but varied, just like you would want eyewitnesses to be. And now the problem is, oh, but they contradict when they don't. What it is is a smokescreen for someone who doesn't want to believe the Bible. Just tell me that, bro. Just tell me that. Because for many of us, there was a time where we didn't want to hear it either. But when we're looking at this, I think the most important piece to this is what Jesus thought. And there's so many places we can go to how Jesus handled Scripture. Now, here's why we need to do this. Because someone will tell you, well, you just taught me that Scripture is truthful. And the, re- the way you taught me was by pointing to Scripture. Scripture is true because Scripture says it. Okay, eventually, it has to be a, a point of faith that you believe. Okay, That's true. But secondly, well, first of all, Scripture has to say it. If Scripture doesn't say it about itself, then that's weird. But Scripture does say it about itself. So we got that. Second, does it stand the test of time? Are there contradictions? No. 
there aren't big glaring contradictions that, you know, we need to chuck this whole thing in the garbage. Not true. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, if Jesus is who he said he was, and Jesus rose from the dead, then then Jesus is God. So what did Jesus say about Scripture? I want to hear that. And there are many examples, and one is we, uh, we, I want to turn you to real quick before we close is Matthew 12. And I don't want to put it on the screen. I want you to turn there. First book of the New Testament, the first gospel, not chronologically, but in the Bible as you have it in your lap. The gospel of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Now, keeping in mind that many of the arrows that are thrown against this idea that the Bible is true are just all the crazy stories in there, you know? You got an entire sea splitting open. You got snakes turning into staffs, you know? You got angels popping in and out of, you know, people's stories and Sun is standing still. Walls are crumbling down because a few people marched and blew some horns. I mean, stuff that doesn't make any sense. A dude gets swallowed by a big fish, lives in there for three days, and then gets spit back out. And when he gets spit back out, he takes his stinky self, okay, and marches across a city called Nineveh. And historians will tell you, you can't, you can't hike Nineveh. You can't do, in the amount of time that it says he did it, preach all to all the people there. And then all the people of the entire city, now as much as Billy Graham has ever done, has an entire city repented? The entire city of Nineveh? Nineveh was bad news. It wasn't like New York. It was like an entire uh, country full of the worst terrorists that just crimes. And, and then all of them in one big revival turned to God. That's just crazy. Well, now Jesus is on the scene. In Matthew chapter 12 He's doing some miracles. People hate it. They hate what he's thinking about himself. They hate what he's doing. And they hate what he's saying about the Pharisees and the religious people. Hey, look, you know, if you're a bad tree, you're going to produce bad fruit. I see bad fruit. So they hated him. And then in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees responded to Jesus. They answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Fine, prove it. Prove it to us. Give us a sign. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Pause. If I were trying to convince you that a miracle was going to happen and it was going to happen for real, would I use as an example a myth from the past? If I were trying to convince you and you didn't believe that we were going to be, have glorified bodies, that we we're going to be changed in a moment, that when Jesus comes back, we're going to be changed instantaneously and have bodies that are, are very much different than what we're used to. Now, no colds, no sicknesses, you know, no, no, no asthma, that, that we're going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to bring his people together, and we're going to be changed in a moment. And I were trying to convince you that that's true and that's going to happen. Would I say, you know... Like werewolves, you know when they change, when the moon is out and they change, that's how we're going to change. Would that make sense? That wouldn't help very much, right? Pointing to a myth to help 
to help you believe something that's already difficult for you to believe. It wouldn't help my case by pointing to a fairy tale. Remember when Little Red Riding Hood? Yeah, that's what's going to happen. No. I would have to point to something real to help verify that this thing that's coming is also real. Jesus didn't point back to a myth. You remember when Jonah was in the great fish for three days? And guess what, guys? The people around him didn't believe it was a myth either. The argument has weight to it because he's saying what happened with Jonah happened as a precursor to what's going to happen to me. And it's actually going to happen to me. The next verse he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment at this, with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What he's saying is as bad as Nineveh was, as bad as Nineveh was, Jonah preached throughout the whole city, and the whole city came to repentance. And Jonah was a chump. He didn't even want to be there. The Son of God is here. The one who's going to be three days dead and rise again is here in front of you, preaching to you, doing unbelievable miracles in front of you, and you still don't believe the Ninevites one day are going to condemn you. Because you had a greater exposure to the gospel and you still didn't listen. That's amazing. That's amazing. But the point is Jesus wouldn't say that. Remember the supposed story of when the Ninevites supposedly had Jonah supposedly preaching to them and he supposedly they repented? Well, supposedly they're going to judge you. I'm just saying. No, they're for real going to judge you because it for real happened. Jesus had a view of Scripture, that Scripture was true, you can bank on it. That's why Jesus would argue with the Pharisees. Remember when the Bible said this, and Scripture can't be broken, and if it can't be broken, that means it says this, you should be doing it, right? You should be believing it, right? And then the Pharisees like, um, um, where's the cliff? Let's throw this guy off of it. His logic was, Scripture's true. If Scripture's true, you should believe what it says. You don't believe what it says because Scripture points to me and you're rejecting me. Jesus had the highest view of Scripture. He quoted it all the time. And never once does he refer to it as partially true or mixed up with myths or mixed up with falsehoods. He quotes it as truth. But one thing that I do, I guess, respect about a guy like Bart Ehrman is he at least takes it to a logical conclusion. You know, he says, well, there's a mistake in Mark. There's a mistake in Luke. Wait, there's several mistakes in Mark and Luke. Look, there's mistakes in Matthew, he'll say. How do you determine where the mistakes are and where the truth is? How do we do that? Well, that's just it. We have to do it. Now the highest authority that we can appeal to is not Scripture, but if Scripture is mixed with truth and error, not that it's all wrong, but it's mixed, the ones that have to discern which parts are true and which parts are error is man. And now the highest court of appeal for authority is men. And that's a problem. I wouldn't want to be on that council. Hey, let's decide what's true this year. Let's decide which portions of Matthew we're going to take a black sharpie marker to and which portions we're going to highlight. What's popular today? All right, let's highlight that. Then have another council a few years later. Never mind, that's not so popular anymore. We look like idiots. Let's reverse it. It would be a mess. 
But sadly, whole denominations are treating Scripture exactly that way. It's a problem. Because you lose that logical chain that was laid out for us in 2 Timothy 3. Scripture is profitable exactly because it's all God-breathed. If it's only some of it God-breathed, then it's only sometimes profitable, and we don't know when that profit is. You ever read a passage of Scripture and wish that line wasn't there? You ever come to church and there's a sermon, and you're like, ah, that one's for me, I wish I was stayed in sick today. That's good. Sometimes it punches you in the face. Your best friends are the friends that tell you when you've got something on your face. The ones that let you go with that, I don't know, <laughs> your hair's messed up, you got a big old eye crusty, and they let you go all day, and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, that's not cool, right? If you got to pick and choose what you wanted out of Scripture, all you would do is invent for yourself a religion where you're at the top and everything's cool. It can't rebuke me because I'll just black sharpie marker the parts that I don't like. But if it's fully true, then it has full authority. And I conform to it the parts I like, the parts that rough me up. So, if God is truthful and he inspired scripture, then scripture is true. I don't think God would leave us guessing Staring at shapes of clouds, trying really hard to interpret dreams, okay? Looking for patterns in the carpet. Ah, I should take that job. No, Scripture. Scripture. If someone tells me they had a dream, and the dream tells them that they should do something, and what they're saying that something is, and they feel like it was from the Spirit of God, but it contradicts Scripture, what do we do? Have a dilemma? No, there's no dilemma. You might have had that dream, but it it means the wrong thing, bro. Scripture. Scripture. The Bible is fully authoritative because it's fully true. If I gave you a compass just before your hike into the woods and I told you, hey, this compass is only sometimes accurate. (laughs) Have fun in the Rockies. Would you use it? I mean, if a clock was broken... Even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Would you use it? You got to guess when it's right. It says 11.02. When is it right? I know it's right twice a day. You wouldn't use it. Guys, people that say scriptures mixed with errors, but that's okay. We can still have Christianity. They're wrong. Because they're guessing. They're guessing what parts are right. They're guessing which parts to yield to. And if you're sitting there wondering, where, where is this practical? Where is this like, where does this affect my marriage or affect my life? It has everything to do with it. Because if Scripture were open to hits and misses, and you don't know where it's a hit and where it's a miss, then what's going to happen is you're going to go, none of it's a hit. Because I can't tell which parts are right. And if that's the conclusion, you're not going to yield to it. Why would you yield to something that's erroneous but if it's true if it's true then we need to submit and yield to what it says the next uh, six weeks as we go through those important pieces of doctrine 
Those aren't necessarily the favorite, my favorite, no, Lucas's favorite things. They're not Lucas' top seven things from the Bible. No, they're the top seven most clear, most clearly taught pieces of information that we have about God in the Bible. The most solid, most foundational, basic truths that we need in order to live godly lives. But we can't access that truth if we don't have an authoritative source. Now, I'm going to admit, admit to you right now, there are so many questions, probably even swirling in your mind. What about this passage? What about this thing I heard on the radio? There are answers, okay? I want you to do your homework. Call me. Let's have a meeting, right? Let's talk. Let's talk this out. There's way too much to cram into one sermon. But if there's any lingering doubt in your heart, in your mind, about the authority of Scripture, please bring that to me, to one of the elders, to your growth group. Because that's a, that's a bad place to be if you keep edging toward that, that ledge where eventually you fall off and go, why am I, why are we studying this? So you want to nip it in the bud and say, all right, let me look at that a little closer. What is the answer to that? So that we can protect the full authority of the text so that we don't have to rely on a false authority like a pastor or a council. That same professor I was talking to, I asked him, so what's the highest court of appeal? If you're not sure which parts are erroneous and which parts are true, what's the highest court of appeal? He said the creeds. You know, the creeds that the churches, church councils established throughout the generations of the early church. And I asked him, where do they get the creeds from? He knew the answer. It's circular. The creeds have weight because they're, they match this. This doesn't have weight because they match creeds. So I love creeds. I love confessions. I love going through those Westminster Catechism questions with my kids. What is the chief purpose of man? The chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's great. How do we know that? Question number three or four. I don't memorize them. I'm just making my kids memorize them. The Bible is authoritative because it's true.